I want to say, uh, first of all, that I want to, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the fact that we have Dr. Packer in our midst, uh, we, we, we owe that in large part to Gil Cracky. Uh, Gil Cracky, uh, uh, Gil discovered that Dr. Packer would be in the United States and that, that, uh, this uh, period of time and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get him at the advent? And I said, well, sure, it, it, it would be. So I think it was about last April. We sent a letter to, uh, to Dr. Packer, and uh, some uh, time later, we, we uh, uh, had his reply, received his letter in the mail, uh, that he would be uh, able to be here. Now, the fact that, that uh, one of the reasons that I love Dr. Packer, among many reasons, is the fact that he's tr a traditionalist. But the fact that, there, that that letter was written on a manual typewriter really, really touched my heart. Uh, uh, no end. Uh, Dr. Brady, wait, can you can you buy ribbons for um, you, you, you? Okay. And uh, typewriter ribbons. Yeah. And uh, just what do you do? Uh, you work on a manual typewriter as you as you write books and, and talks. And do you generally work on a, on a manual typewriter? No. <laughs> <laughs> he asked if that created a moral problem. Uh, <laughs> and the answer to that is absolutely no. Absolutely no. It touches my heart. Well, to say that, that Dr. Pactor is, is a gifted uh, uh, a writer would be a, a gross understatement. Uh, his, his gifts are certainly clarity, uh, his uh, uh, determination to apply uh, theology to, to everyday life. His, uh, his thoroughness in dealing with the subject and his unwavering uh, conviction uh, that bad theology that is not rooted in the scripture is, is, is bad for people. Uh, and uh, so we, we are just uh, delighted to have you. His books have sold over, uh, I think it's over three million copies uh, that he sold. Yes. Uh, uh, Alice McGrath, I think, uh, summed it up when he said, uh, it, it is true that Dr. Packer is undoubtedly a great theologian, but it may be uh, even more appropriate to say he is a wonderful theologizer, which is to say that he has uh, knowledge and he has love uh, and he has uh, and he's constantly thinking about God and he's able to express all of this uh, uh, in, in words as a, as a, a, a passionate author. So as, as tried as it may uh, sound, I just want to say we are absolutely and utterly delighted to have you, Dr. Packer. So please uh, come up. I am going to take my coat off. That's a bit too hot for that. That's right. You look after it. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you so much. Good morning, everybody, and let me say at once, I'm grateful for the welcome. Um, wonderfully warm. Uh, too warm, indeed, really, for weather like this. But um, warm in a good cause, and as I said, um, I feel it, and I appreciate it, and I'm glad to be with you. Um, as you've already heard, it was Gil who arranged this, and I was delighted to do it. And it was Gil, actually, who gave me my title, the title to which I'm speaking, Theology is for Everyone. 
I liked that title when Gill proposed it, and so here I am speaking to it. And what's going to happen is that I speak for something like 40, 45 minutes, and then there's a question time, then there's a break, and following the break, coffee break, um, I have a second presentation following on from the first. So that's how it's going to go, if all is well. As I said, Gill chose the title for me because he knows, as indeed uh, the Dean has just said, that all through my life of ministry, I have been beating the drum about the need for all the Lord's people to be theologians. Um, as uh, Moses said, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, I say, would that all the Lord's people were theologians. And I see myself, uh, well, I'm not going to, res re I'm not going to refuse Alistair McGrath's word for how he sees me as a theologizer. He may even have coined that word to describe me. But I see myself as an adult catechist. Um, and that's a category of ministry which is hardly known today. The word catechism doesn't appear very often in our thinking and our speech. And the principles of catechetical action, or catechizing as an activity, I have to say, in honesty, are hardly understood by anybody. Say catechism to the ordinary Anglican, and he thinks of the uh, questions with set answers that are provided for the instruction of children uh, in our prayer book. These days, I find in preparing young people for confirmation, the catechism is ordinarily uh, honored in the breach rather than the observance, as we say. In other words, it isn't used. And the thought of adult catechism never enters anyone's mind. The assumption rather is, and I'm afraid that a lot of things are said to encourage it, that when Anglicans have been confirmed, ordinarily in their teens, then they know everything that they need to know and can go through the rest of their Christian life without any further learning at all. Well, adult catechists challenge that view. We say that the Christian life, just as it's meant to be an endless um, activity of obeying, so it's meant to be an endless activity of learning. And adult catechists like me labor to make this happen by teaching at adult level the truths that people live by, that is, the truths that Christian people live by or should live by, and when one does that, I speak now from my own experience, I find, and I think others have found too, that people wake up to the fact that this is what they've been hungry for for a long time. And they lap it up and are thrilled simply because their hunger is being satisfied. They hardly realized how much they wanted this 
until it's being provided. So if there are uh, words of acclamation when one has uh, dealt with um, a topic like mine today, well, it's acclamation for the activity and for the content rather than for the performer. Um, I have uh, discerned this over the years, and um, I'm very happy that it be so. Uh, if you know anything about the history of the church in the early centuries, the names Oregon and uh, Cyril of Jerusalem and Augustine will mean something to you. Well, these guys, who have become landmark figures in the church's theological history, saw themselves as catechists. And they have left behind them catechetical material, and they've written treatises on uh, catechizing as an activity. Um, I am trying to revive this because I think we all need it, and that's the mental approach that guides me in what I'm going to say to you now. So, here we go. Oh, let me just name one name before I launch into the material itself. C.S. Lewis was an adult catechist in the material that he wrote for adult reading. It is certainly a fact that he is better known as the author of the Narnia stories than he is as the author of Mere Christianity and Screwtape Letters and Miracles and his other works of what we call Christian apologetics. But actually, if you read those uh, works, yes, you can read them as apologetics, but in the first instance, you ought to be reading them as exposition of the truths that adult believers live by, and then a defense of those truths against the many, both in and outside the church, who would undermine them. So that Lewis, from my standpoint, uh, ought to be celebrated as a lay pastor, even though he never saw himself in those terms. But he was doing what uh, pastors have to do, or to ensure that somebody does, uh, namely practicing adult catechesis. Catechesis is the noun from the verb catechize. And this dimension of Lewis's contribution to the church today seems to me to be something that needs, needs to be highlighted in a way that it hasn't been highlighted yet. And now, from what I've said, you can see at least part of the reason why adult Christians reading these uh, works of adult Christianity by C.S. Lewis lap them up, love them, and gain so... Um, uh, gains so much from them. It isn't just that Lewis is a very bright man, although he was all of that. It's that he was a godly man doing what adult catechists do, that is, expounding for grown folk the truths that uh, adult Christians must live by, and showing, modeling in most cases, um, those very truths in his own way of living before God. Uh, there is quite a lot of autobiographical stuff, as you know, in the Lewis Corpus, where he tells you how he came to live this way before God and what it means to him to do it. Well, 
Under the auspices of what Lewis did, though without identifying himself as an adult catechist, I move into what I'm going to do, having made the identification, and um, come clean with you as to what I'm about. Okay? Now, here we go. Question. Who denies that theology is for everyone? Two sorts of people. One, the skeptics, who don't believe that there's any truth or wisdom in Christianity anyway. And second, the mass of folk in the churches whose attitude on questions of Christian truth is, leave it to the clergy. There are lots of such folk in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, and in the Anglican Church. And friends, it is not the way to go. Not the way to personal maturity in Christ. Not the way to please God. I am going to say, in effect, that it's mental laziness. I am going to say that it's unspiritual mental laziness, which sounds a bit rough, I know. But that's really what it comes to. And the fact that it is so much part of the ethos and style of our own Anglican Church doesn't make it any the less unlovely laziness. An example of the... Uh, the one of the seven deadly sins called sloth, sloth of the mind, and it does hold us back. Now, let's anchor this truth in our mind by reflecting for a moment on what Jesus said uh, in regard to this. He was on one occasion asked, what is the great commandment of the law? He answered, in fact, by um, citing two commandments, which he said are of equal importance. But the first one, and of course you know what's coming, first one is this. We're in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, and verse, 20, uh, verse 26. Jesus answered, the most important of the laws is this. Um, Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Yes, with all your mind. The scribe who'd asked the question picked up on that and said, You're right, teacher. You've truly said that God is one and that there's no other beside him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, that's his word, to match Jesus' word, mind, to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, second commandment, is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Two words for mind are being used there in the Greek, um, and I imagine that means that in the original Aramaic of the conversation, uh, two words that corresponded were being used. But certainly the Greek words are words with complementary meanings. Um, the word rendered mind in Jesus' statement is the Greek word dianoia, which means reasoning power. And the thing to remember about reasoning power, friends, 
is that um, modern knowledge of the brain and the mind um, alerts us to the fact that the brain has a left lobe as well as a right lobe, and the left lobe is for logic, inference, argument, all of that, and the right lobe is for imagination, drama, um, pictures of all sorts, um, any kind of imaginative communication, and the use of the mind involves both the left lobe and the right lobe, both logical reasoning and imaginative presentation. And it seems to me that we should say at once, yes, when Jesus speaks of loving the Lord with all our mind, he means all the powers of the mind to be brought into use in that activity. And then the scribe, responding to him, uses the word which Mark renders um, by understanding, sunesis in the Greek, and understanding means insight, grasp of values, grasp of priorities, achievement of wisdom. Wisdom, that great Bible virtue of knowing the way to go in a world, indeed in a personal life, where there are any number of ways that one might go, and only one of them is the right way at each point. Well, that's what it means, then, according to our Lord um, and, uh, and the scribe, that's what it means to love the Lord, our God, with all our mind. It means use of the mind. It means thinking. Now, if you read the story of Jesus, read the four Gospels, the most precious books in the world, they ought to be read more often than any other part of the Bible, in my view, because there you see the Lord himself in action. If you read the Gospels, or reread the Gospels, um, looking at Jesus' words from this point of view, you will see that God-centered thinking, where any views of life that are not God-centered are challenged and corrected. God-centered thinking, with any amount of imaginative power in picturing truth for projection into our minds and hearts, that's the way that the Lord thought. That's the way that the Lord used his mind in communication. And that's a model for us. Well, enough said about that. Um, you, can, you can see now why the uh, greatest evangelical preacher in England in the middle of the 19th century, the late Martin, the uh, middle of the 20th century, sorry, the late Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, used to say frequently, the Christian is the greatest thinker in the world. Why did he say that? Why, because the Christian has systematically to correct all the wrongly focused perspectives of the world's thinking. The world's thinking means the thinking of the guy with whom you're rubbing shoulders all the time, um, and the thinking of the newspapers, and the thinking of the media, and um, all expressions of view that the world comes up with for the benefit of people in the world, 
Uh, that thinking, when you look at it, is all man-centered. It assumes that um, we are in some way the center of the universe. We are in some way competent to manage everything that's going on. We are qualified in human terms to judge everything that people do. It's all man-centered. And the Christian, day by day, has to keep thinking, at least this was Martin Lloyd-Jones' point, um, it isn't always taken, but it should be, uh, the Christian every day has to keep thinking, now, how does this look to God? What's God's view of it? You can see, perhaps, why Karl Barth used to say that it's part of the Christian discipline of prayer to read the newspaper. And so to discern what one has to pray about and what one has to correct, in fact, in testimony. God-centered thinking is what we're talking about today. God-centered thinking is what the Lord Jesus modeled, and the same, of course, is true of the apostles in the New Testament letters. And God-centered thinking is the art, the skill, the insight, the wisdom that you and I have to acquire called to acquire, and may acquire by the grace of our Lord. Ask another question, what exactly then is theology? The theology that we're saying is for everyone. Why theology is precisely this kind of thinking. Thinking about God and everything else, with God at the center of everything. Uh, at the center of everything. What is the basis of such theology, what gives shape to it? Answer, God's revelation, uh, which we meet in the words of Christ, in the teaching of the apostles, and in the Old Testament presentation of God's preparation for Christ and the apostles, um, God appears in uh, the biblical literature as the God who it isn't a case of shows and tells, it's a case of tells and shows. Because God always says in advance what he's going to do before he does it. Um, and uh, that means that the telling must come first. Our God is a God who speaks and tells us things. That's very basic. And in the Bible story, he is doing it constantly. And um, the Bible itself which records all of this, is in its own nature utterance from God, uh, written material from God, God telling us things on paper through the testimony of his chosen penmen. Um, the whole situation is parallel to the sermons of the prophets where God tells his people what he wants his people to hear through the lips and the testimony of his chosen messengers. So it's biblical revelation, which is a phrase covering both the historical process and the explanatory and applicatory record of it. Uh, it's biblical revelation that must shape theology. And theology must, from this standpoint, be a reflection of what we will call biblical thinking, kind of thinking that you see in the Master 
and that you see in his servants, the apostles, who founded churches and then wrote letters to the churches, setting themselves as the God-given standard for how you think about this, that, and the other, and how you're to behave. This is the heritage that we have to grasp. This is the wisdom that we have to plug into. This is what we have to learn to do if we are to love and honor our God with all our minds. It helps, I think, to remember here that our God is the father of the family. Um, when I say our God, I am thinking specifically of the one whom Jesus prayed to as his father and told his disciples that they must regard as their father. This was Jesus' witness in the whole of his earthly ministry to the truth of adoption, which um, is made much of in the New Testament. Um, the Lord Jesus, assured, is divine, son of God, by nature. We are sons of God, in the sense of being heirs of God, and children within his family, children whom he loves, by adoption. Well, uh, understanding that, um, it seems to me, straight away, it imparts warmth to the prospect of using our minds for God in a decent family. Parents are teaching the children all the time, and in a decent family, with the blessing of God, the children will lap it up. It doesn't always happen, I know, but ideally it would happen, and we all know that. The family of God is the ideal family, and so we, the children, are gratefully to receive what a heavenly father tells us, as father of the family, uh, we are to lap it up, we are to internalize it, we are to make it part of our own thinking, we are to live in the world as children in the family of God, who are able to express the family point of view on whatever arises. This is theology. Are you beginning to get the idea? I trust so. But now let me ask this question, because um, we have to get down to brass tacks with each other. Why then do 20 and 21st century Christians feel, as so many do, frightened of theology? It's above me, it's beyond me, it's not my business, I'm going to keep clear of it. I don't think any of you will want to challenge me when I say that that is a widespread, subliminal, but very potent feeling uh, in the minds and the hearts of a lot of people in our churches. Theology is dangerous. Please don't ask me to go too close to it. Well, <coughs> I ask why people should feel this way. And the answer is that in our time, in the, all through the 20th century and now into the 21st, we have been surrounded, friends, by bad theology. And it's put us off. Who can wonder? 
the bad theology calls itself liberalism. It takes to itself what seems to me to be a, a noble name that naturally implies something good and admirable and applies it to a kind of thinking which is neither good nor admirable, which is, on the contrary, bad and killing it in, in its effects. Liberalism, um, so-called, is a product of two forces in Western culture that have been going in strength for over two centuries. One is rationalism. Now, the essence of rationalism uh, as a way of thinking is that man, you and me, we humans, man is seen as the measure of all things. The thinking is man-centered, and the principle of it is that what man cannot understand, manage, or reproduce is not real. Reality is to be defined in terms of what uh, man, how shall I say it, can be on top of, can master. So, rationalistic thinking eliminates the supernatural, Eliminates the Trinity, eliminates the Incarnation, eliminates the miracles of Jesus uh, from the virgin birth to the resurrection and all miracles in between. And leaves us with um, a moral code detached from any doctrine, any significant doctrine of the grace of God changing people. Um, the moral code, rather, is interpreted as... Uh, built around the central maxim of accept everybody the way they are, because they can't change. Well, that's where rationalism takes you. It's anti-revelation, of course. It denies that the Bible is the word of God, and the standard of truth. Um, we knew that. The second movement in Western thought which partners with rationalism in creating liberal liberalism is the mindset which we call romanticism. Now, you hear about romanticism uh, if you're doing uh, courses in literature um, in university, but we don't talk much about romanticism in this special sense of the word anywhere else except in the university. But Romanticism is the name which scholars have given to the view that what matters in life is attitudes and feelings and the real burden and substance of human communication, talk from one to another, is that we are sharing our attitudes and our feelings. In other words, the talk really has a subjective reference. And the purpose of it is to try and ensure that we shall all feel pretty much the same. Um, communication is the purpose of talking, and assimilation at this level of mood, attitude, and feeling is the name of the game. Um, if you know anything about the modern movement, which has caused a bit of a gefuffle in uh, certain circles, the movement that goes under the name of postmodernism, you will know that at the heart of postmodernism is the theory that when we talk to each other, it's always a power game. That is, that the whole purpose of communication 
is to get people to assent to what you think, to uh, believe what you believe. It's a notion that doesn't sit very well with the with postmodernism's other idea that there isn't such a thing as universal truth. But, um, well, postmodernism is a goofy position anyway, and this is just one aspect of its goofiness. Um, having said, uh, there's no universal truth, everybody has their own truth. It then alleges that when we talk to each other, we are saying all the time, now I want you to agree with me. I want you to treat what I'm saying as truth for you. Well, without going any further into that, let me say that postmodernism has grown out of romanticism as well as out of rationalism. And what you've got here is the same subjective approach to communication, which is, um, it's an approach that denies that what you are doing when you talk to another person is communicating public truth, which is there for everybody, whether we believe it or not. That's really what the postmodernists want to say. There is no public truth. And if we believe in a God who has spoken to tell us things, um, we know that that's as wrong as can be. But the liberals have read the Bible as if the things that are being said in the name of God are actually expressions of religious feeling on the part of the people writing, speaking, talking. And what they want to do is to generate the same sort of feelings in us. See? Um, they feel awe, so they talk about God as awesome, not because they know anything about God, not because God has said anything about his transcendence, but simply because they want us to agree with them, um, to share their feelings. In this regard, you could say that theology, as uh, romantics see it, is like, po like poetry, which is uh, an imaginative mode of communication intended to uh, not so much to inform people about matters of fact as to get the reader feeling about matters of fact in the way that the writer of the poem does. Well, rationalism and romanticism put together um, produce, constitute bad theology. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was a twofold reaction among the Lord's faithful people to all this. On the one hand, there was what's called fundamentalism, which is a rigid defensive response to this kind of thinking. Uh, the rigidity has to do with the fact that fundamentalists define a certain number of basic doctrines and say, these are the essentials. We will, if necessary, lay down our lives to defend them. Um, we won't argue about everything, but we will argue endlessly about this. Trinity, incarnation, miracles, atonement, resurrection of Jesus. And that's, as I said, a rigid and a defensive attitude of mind. It doesn't make for constructive contributions to any discussion. Uh, what the fundamentalists were always concerned about was that none of their key doctrines um, be overthrown in the course of the discussions that are going on. 
Now, the second reaction I call pietism. I don't know if you know that word. Uh, you can see it's formed from piety, which is uh, a word that means the same as devotion. Pietism is the view, right so far, let me say, that the most important thing in anybody's life is their relationship with God. That's primary, and everything else must be regarded as secondary to that. I wouldn't say a word against that basic principle of pietism. I think it's right. But then the pietists uh, go on, or at least 20th century pietists went on, to say, now, in order to cultivate our fellowship with God in these difficult times, we are simply not going to bother about what's going on in the wider church beyond our own circles. We are not going to bother about the errors of the world, and we are not going to bother about the errors of the liberals. We are simply going to create a group culture of our own, within which we don't have to bother about these things. All we need to do is to think about what it means to be faithful to the Lord, loyal to um, 